Hello and welcome to The Pathway. My name is Tim Deeks, and in this podcast, we dive deep into the lives of interesting characters from a wide range of backgrounds. No matter if the guest is a leader in business, sport, media, or politics, everyone has a pathway through life. And it is my ambition that through each guest's unique story, you'll be able to take something away to put into action on your own path. So let's start walking. Tom Boyd grew up in Ringwood, Victoria, and from an early age had the weight of expectation. He would go on to be one of the best junior footballers in the country, taken as the first pick in the AFL National Draft. Tom would then go on to be a premiership player with the Western Bulldogs and one of the highest paid footballers in the game. Far braver than anything he did on the football field, Tom made the decision in 2019 to walk away from the game he loved to focus on mental health. I'm grateful that he's trusted me to talk about his pathway. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for having me. Yeah, like I said, uh, leading into the introduction, it's always uh, interesting to see how people remember you and the key points they pull away. Obviously, everyone's pathway is uh, is slightly different. And, and not only that, but the, the opinion and perspective of others of the path we walk is always um, an interesting one to hear. So, information, glad to be here and uh, thanks for having me on. What was your first ever job? I worked about four hours waiting tables uh, at a cafe in Anglesey and then realised that being 6'7 and trying to walk lattes around is a mistake. I suppose before that, probably running water um, at the local football for the senior and, and reserve side. Probably that's probably my first job. But I was probably about when I was 10. But to be honest, doing full-time study at school and then also playing football at the level I did as well as basketball up until the age of 16, there's no real time for for working, so I can't say I've got an illustrious working career behind me. That's for sure. Was it? Uh, we paid it uh, through the canteen. Did they give you, you know, extra couple of snakes, or how did they yeah. uh, remunerate you? Uh, it was. It sort of depended. I mean, when I first started, it was like go and see the treasurer after the game, and you might get like ten bucks cash or twenty bucks cash, depending on how well the bar had done the day. I think. Um, and then it used to be like canteen vouchers, and anyway. But by the end of the day, and you worked you know, eight quarters across the two games. And the canteens, all, all that's left is like cold pies, thrown out hot dogs. So I was more interested in the cash at that stage than trying to get any food, that's for sure. I know you're a pretty, pretty humble man, so you'll be embarrassed that I say it, but I've read that you were quite a good student. You were scoring, you scored in the 90s in VCE. For anyone um, in Victoria, that means in the top 10%. What was school life like for you? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, yeah, I try, I try as much as I can to be humble but I, from my beginnings it's important to uh to understand that I, I was a, a prolific student I mean I, I really did enjoy learning and I think you know in no small part missing that during my football career was challenging English was my go uh, I was a, a really good English student which I think propped up my score a bit but I went across the sciences and maths pretty much so methods uh, physics further mathematics and biology uh, I did pretty well in all of them but yeah, English was my was definitely my passion and my go, and probably to be honest, still is till this day. So fitted in well. How would teachers describe you? Uh, it depends on what year. <laughs> I imagine they'd um, describe me as being a, a, a smart student who probably was slightly distracted up until I reckon year nine, and then once we started getting challenged properly, year ten to twelve, I'd say that they had a really good relationship with me, uh, and particularly some of the the more challenging classes, be that English or methods or anything where I could really sink my teeth into learning, I think I uh, flourished in. Um, but if I did subjects, particularly early days, which were like elective subjects such as woodwork or visual communication design or something I wasn't passionate about, 
I think I got distracted too easily, to be honest. But um, yeah, as I said, once the challenging aspect came into it, it was pretty hard to pull me away from uh, my work. When did you know that football wasn't just something you loved, but something that you could make into a career? Yeah, interesting question. I would honestly say this, um, and this is memory, so take it with a grain of salt, but I think that I thought about playing AFL football when I was five. I, I just re- remember thinking that seems like a pretty good job. And, you know, maybe that was because I was a fan of the game, but more so than being obsessed with players for their personalities, I, w- I was more of a fan of the game. And, the you know, I never was the guy who wanted a photo with players. I was never the guy who was really interested in bombarding, you know, superstars with um, with questions or taking up their time I was actually more just interested in watching them play the game and, and how they carry themselves so to answer that question I honestly think as young as five and, and I, it certainly became much more apparent basically from the ages of 11 where I just missed out on schoolboys, um, Victorian schoolboys that is and then when I was 15 I captained the state and 16 played state and 17 played state so it sort of became pretty serious um, probably when I was around 15 I'd say. How did you, when it was your time to come, how did you deal with, you know, people coming up for selfies and and all that comes with being a professional athlete? Yeah, it's a really good question. I'm actually writing a book at the moment and I'm going through this process, particularly around my um, under-18s year when I start becoming basically well-known for my football. And, and there's, there's sort of two key years where it becomes quite serious. That's my bottom age under-18s where I play um, a really good game uh, down at Cadenia Park in Geelong get some notoriety, you know, televised on Fox footy, people start knowing my name, starts becoming a bit of a fad that I'm going to be going high in the draft next year. And then obviously through that under 18 year where I'm, you know, being touted as the number one pick. And the real challenging thing for young people, I think, is that every conversation you have with someone who's a fan or someone who's interested or invested in your life is something that they've built themselves up for for a significant period. Whereas for you, obviously, often it can catch you off guard and trying to match their energy can be really, really difficult. Um, it can be quite draining. Yeah. And so for me, you know, being basically brought up to be polite and well-mannered, I mean, it was a massive part of my mum. She's uh, Danish, so Scandinavia is quite renowned for its well-mannered people. And I, I found that bit really difficult because I was trying to be um, that really nice, well-mannered kid to 10 times the amount of people that I was used to. Um, and I think particularly when I got injured in my final under 18 year, it became even more difficult because I was sitting on the sidelines for a lot of it, listening to people basically talk about my career, which was currently on standby with a serious ankle injury. So it certainly wasn't something that I enjoyed per se. And, and as I went into the AFL, there was two stigmas, or not stigmas, two, two titles or labels attached to me, which was that, you know, I was an underperforming number one pick and also... Obviously, the uh, the seven years, seven million dollar contract component. Once I moved back to Victoria, so my interactions with the public varied, and my ability to uh, to cope with them certainly varied with it. Um, I have a very good relationship with them now, though. So you know, swings and roundabouts, it all comes out in the wash, I suppose. Mental health is, I know, is something you're incredibly passionate about, and it's a major element of your pathway. When did you begin to notice that the, these thoughts, they just weren't going away, these negative vibes? Yeah, I suppose it's interesting. I mean, from a categorization point of view, I would say my first symptoms probably were my first season at the Giants when I moved up to Sydney. Um, now, I would describe my two issues primarily as um, 
sleep as a number one, um, particularly with, you know, going to bed, racing thoughts, suddenly not being able to sleep two, three, four hours, and then going up and it sort of was coinciding with the most difficult pre-season of my life where I was doing, you know, 40 Ks a week and all this extra cross training. And so I should have been physically exhausted, but I mentally was incapable of recovery. Uh, and then the anxiety component, um, which I didn't know what that was at the time, I sort of describe it as pre-game nerves that permeated through my week it's probably a, an apt description of where my perspective was then. Um, those two things together um, really left me struggling to enjoy things um, from a fatigue point of view and then also being really uncomfortable in public uh, and uncomfortable in social settings and basically led to me spending a lot of time by myself and a lot of time avoiding certain situations. And I think that would be considered the first really challenging stage I had. And, and certainly probably when I reflect back on it, a bit of a sliding doors moment in terms of my decline, um, which probably culminated in 2017, I'd say. Hi, it's Tim's mum, Mandy here, and I hope you're enjoying The Pathway. If you love listening to Tim as much as I do... Please subscribe and rate this podcast while you're listening. Back to you, Tim. Pressure plays a big part in anyone's pathway, but when you're in the public eye, that pressure becomes heightened. And before a big game, did you have any strategies to offset any anxiety you might be feeling? No, not really. Um, I actually really struggle with it. I, I actually talk quite often, um, and this comes up um, when I'm doing you know, keynote speeches or I'm talking to, to groups, it's, one of the things that people don't realize about the professional footballing element is just how much goes into the prelude to a game uh, in terms of preparation and, you know, watching vision and uh, all of the recovery things, training, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the list goes on. And for me, I really struggled because uh, it genuinely affected my ability to live life over that three or four days leading into a game. And, when I got to a particularly bad stage with my mental state, I really wasn't sleeping for a couple of days before a game. And then basically what you're left with is trying to sum up every bit of energy you can from whatever source, be it adrenaline or nerves or, um, you know, anxiety or whatever it is to get you through that game, that, that two-hour period. And I think in a way I had to kind of grapple with that rather than, thinking about calming down because I was so fatigued for a lot of my career. But look, for when it worked, I think one of the biggest things is just coming out of yourself and, and focusing on the people and the team around you. It's very easy to become extraordinarily insular. And when you do that, obviously, you're sort of left to your own devices in both in preparation, but also when you get out there, it's very difficult to be worried solely about your own performance rather than the performance of the team and you're not doing that because you're being selfish you're doing that because you feel insecure or ill-prepared or worried or doubt or any of those very normal feelings so that would be the one thing I would probably say worked for me in the long term which was just leaning on other people what's a misconception people have about mental health that you that you know to be untrue probably I mean, there's, there's probably a few uh, I'm trying to think what would be the one that I think is the most I mean obviously the fact that it's directly correlated with your circumstances in life would be the one that I'd probably say is the most commonly misconceived. 
I mean, I look at my journey just from a chronological point of view, and there's a very plausible argument to be had that, you know, my mental health issues in Sydney were directly correlated with how it was going. I mean, I was playing mediocre. I was in a different state. I'd changed my life dramatically in five months. I was probably missing home. And, you know, I had the weight of being the number one pick on my shoulders. But when I think about what happened when I came back to Victoria, it was like, Okay, well, I'm seeing an uptick in my performance on the field, both 2015, 2016. And then 2016, you're talking about one of the most historic years in Western Bulldogs history. And to be a part of that is very significant. But then, you know, all the while, those two years, 15 and 16, were some of the most difficult years with regards to my mental health that I had, um, which, again, culminated the year after the grand final. So I think that's probably the biggest misconception that, you know, Successful people, well-off people, people who have been extraordinarily blessed and lucky don't suffer from this. Yeah, it's probably the misconception I'd, I'd point, out, point out. My mum's, she's a psychologist and, and we talk a lot about what's affected people during COVID. And one of the biggest things she mentions is their sense of identity. Who am I? When, when you think about your own journey, how were you able to navigate um, that question when many people just a pigeonhole you as a, an AFL footballer? Yeah, not not well, especially not early. I mean, not only did they pigeonhole me, but I did as well. I mean, from the age of 15, I designated a lot of my self-worth to my sport. Uh, and to be honest, that was largely predicated on the fact that I was doing really, really well. Um, now, in the background over my final two years of school, I obviously had the academic uh, component that I was leaning on as well. Uh, but to be honest, I'd propped up a lot of who I was on Tom the footballer rather than Tom the person, which obviously encompasses my footballing pursuits as well. So uh, once I got into the league, it was very easy for me to become extraordinarily attached and dependent, I would say, on the views of others, as well as the views that I had on my own football journey, which by nature as a professional athlete is going to be tumultuous. And part of the journey back to understanding who I was and probably what honestly led to my retirement was picking up that other component of myself that I'd left behind, which was my schooling and working out where I actually wanted to be in my life. And one of those things that I like to share with people is, you know, one of the things that was really useful for me was having more than one thing that I was um, proud of in my life, more than one thing that I sort of used as a sense of achievement. Uh, and that would be my school and my football. And when I actually retired, I was sitting in the university car park at Victoria University in Melbourne, and I was sort of sitting there about to go into an uh, three-hour lecture at 6 p.m. at night, probably with some really boring and mundane class in front of me. But I was more excited to be there than I had been um, to be at football for a long time. And that's when I made the call that, you know, be it the millions of dollars they owed me or the, um, the years that I had left in my contract, plus the contracts that I undoubtedly would have been able to go onto after that. that. That wasn't what was important. What was important was to me was doing the things that I wanted to do and, um, and setting myself up for a life where I was most likely to be successful and satisfied and fulfilled with what I was, what I was doing in my life. You've moved into the world of professional speaking. What's more nerve-wracking, lining up for goal or entertaining and, and, and keeping an audience engaged? Oh, lining up for goal. Uh, I actually quite like speaking, to be honest. I don't find it particularly nerve-wracking, uh, especially, with, I mean, with the content that I do, it's very much how I feel um, and what I've felt previously. So the authenticity of it allows me to be um, somewhat fluid and talking, you know, I mean, initially it was challenging. I mean, my first uh, 
my first public event was at Westburn, Westbourne High School in Werribee. And I remember going over, I actually had like three and a half thousand words. Um, I was ready to talk for 20 minutes and I went over it and over it and over it and I couldn't get it right. Could not get it right for the life of me. Sitting in the car all the way up until I got to the point where I was completely stressed and ready to walk in to do this thing with basically no preparation. And once I got there, I stood up and I started talking. It all made sense. And, and I think that's part of it, right? I mean, we, we all are going to have moments in our lives where it feels like we're on the edge of something that's terrifying. Um, but if it's what we want to do and we're prepared to do it properly, um, which I was, I just I didn't know it. Um, taking that step is, is exactly where you find some of the most satisfying moments. And I haven't really looked back since then. You know, I've spoken in front of crowds of 1,500, 2,000 people, um, business people, schools, not-for-profits, charitable groups, you know, I've, I've, I've done it all. So it's certainly been a really interesting journey thus far. I've just got a couple of rapid fire questions to, to finish off. Sure thing. The first thing that you do when you get up in the morning is? Uh, drink water. How much? How much water? Uh, depends how much you left in the bottle from the night before, but I, I really do like to um, get some water drink. And if not that, usually I get up and go for a walk and have a coffee. So one, one or the other. The person I would most like to have dinner with is? That's a really good question. Maybe uh, let's just say like Denzel Washington or someone like that. He's got an incredible story. The book I recommend to people the most is? One I've read recently is um, Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights, which I think is really one digestible for a lot of people in terms of the content, which is good, but sort of just puts an interesting framework on how to look at life. Uh, I found it somewhat uh, liberating in the sense that when you read it, you feel like life's easier rather than more complicated, which sometimes can be rare with those sorts of books. If, and the last question is, if, if you had a billboard, you get a message out to millions of people, what would you have written on it? Uh, you don't have to do it alone. Or something to that ilk. I mean, that's the biggest lesson that I've learned along the way. I spent more than enough time thinking I had all the answers. And it never, ever worked out for the better in the long term. Um, so, yeah, you know, you don't have to do it alone. Be the one that I'd give to people. Tom, I'm so incredibly grateful for your um, openness. And, um, and I really appreciate having you on the pathway. It was awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, tell your friends, and join me next time on The Pathway.